whether you're watching online or in person at North Richland Hills, South Lake, or West Fort Worth campus, I want to say welcome to the Hills and Baptism Sunday. I can promise you this is going to be an incredibly encouraging day. And many of us need encouragement right now because we are facing great discouragement. Our brackets have blown up. <laughs> and yesterday, the team I wanted to win the whole thing, the Baylor Bears, suffered an incredible defeat. And let me explain my passion for the Baylor Bears by showing you this picture. This is the first picture in color ever taken of me. And let's go ahead and get it out of the way. You're thinking, he was so cute. What happened? Okay. I was adorable when I was a baby. And notice the shirt. I was born in Waco. And here's why. My father, who grew up in poverty, made a decision to change his life by trying to get a college education and work his way through school. And that's what he did. He went to Baylor. And so he and my mother have been rabid fans of the Baylor Bears all my life. They passed it on to me. Now, if you were a big fan of Baylor, especially in men's football and basketball, you haven't had a lot to celebrate all your life until last year. You recall that the Baylor Bears won the men's national championship. I'm sitting there in my couch watching that game, thinking I would never in my lifetime see this moment. And I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it because I was too nervous about the outcome. Now, if you remember that game, Baylor won rather handedly. In fact, it wasn't a very good game. They were comfortably ahead the whole game. I couldn't enjoy it. Every foul, every missed shot, I thought, oh, no, they might lose. It wasn't until the last two minutes that I finally enjoyed a game I had been waiting for my whole life. Because you see, it really affects your outlook if you're not sure about the outcome. And this is especially true when you talk about following Jesus. When you see the boldness of the first Christians, their willingness to face incredible persecution and even martyrdom, you realize they were so devoted because they knew the victory had already been decided. So we're in the book of Colossians and we're seeing that Paul, a Missionary and a church planter did not just want people to come to Christ. He wanted people to come to maturity in Christ. And the verb he used was rooted in the life of Christ. Because if there's a good root, you will bear good fruit. So we've already talked about being rooted in the gospel of Christ, in the supremacy of Christ, in the wisdom of Christ. And what we want to do today is talk about why it's so critical that we're rooted in the triumph of Christ. We're going to start reading Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Follow with me. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, 
nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you belong to the world still, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations need have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, that's a lot to unpack, and there's so many phrases I could dig into, but I'm going to focus on the phrase that jumped off the page when I started studying for this series months ago. And the phrase is, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, you'd be hard-pressed in the first century to find anybody that would put the word triumph and the word cross in the same sentence. Because in their world, the cross was proof that you lost, not that you won. 600 years before Jesus died on the cross, there was an Olympic Games in Greece. There was a man named Arikion who was going for his third straight championship in a sport that was kind of a mix of boxing and wrestling. He's in the final match. His opponent has him in a stranglehold, a life-threatening hold. Erikion is desperate. He grabs the guy's ankle, dislocates it. The guy in pain holds up his hand to concede. And then Erikion died. And due to the sequence of events, the judges ruled that he's the only person in Olympic history that died and still won. That's what happened at the cross. What the enemy thought was going to be a win turned out to be a crushing defeat. And when you are sure of the outcome of Calvary, it sure does change your outlook on life. You see, mature believers are secure believers. They are mature because they are rooted in the triumph of Jesus on their behalf. They don't engage the enemy for victory. They engage the enemy from the victory of Jesus. And because they're rooted in his triumph, they have an assurance that gives them this unconquerable confidence and let me share with you quickly three things a mature believer is absolutely convinced of. Here's the first, that Jesus' triumph put our deadness to death. Now, in this series, we've talked about reasons some people stay immature in their faith. And one reason is a misdiagnosis of their spiritual condition. 
You will stay in immaturity if you believe what you really need is a resuscitation and not a resurrection. Because you weren't really dead, you were just sick and you need to do something to get better. Now, this is why Christians are so susceptible to legalism. Now, legalism is not obeying God. Legalism is believing your obedience is redemptive. Legalism is, in essence, thinking I can do something to improve myself so that I will impress God. Now, nobody plans to be a legalist. It's kind of like eating at Denny's. You never intend to go there. You just kind of wind up there, all right? <laughs> I'm glad you got that. So if you think I'm just sick and I need to do something to get better so God will like me more, then you are going to be susceptible to all the self-help plans out there. And guess what? The same plans that Paul talked about are still available today. Paul mentioned the special day plan. Pick you some special days on the calendar and make those holier than other days. The special diet plan. Be sure you don't eat that, but eat this, and be sure you don't drink that, but drink this. The special encounter plan. Oh, have you had an experience yet? Maybe a vision with an angel? Have you had any kind of a mystical moment? The special behavior plan. Stop doing that and touching that and do a whole lot more of this. We have the same plans today and they all fail because they all misdiagnose the real problem. Paul puts it like this in verse 23. These rules may seem wise, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. You cannot fix what's wrong inside by polishing the outside. You see, legalism can only produce haughtiness. It can puff you up because you're working the plan and someone else isn't working. And it can produce haughtiness. It can't produce holiness because it is based on a misdiagnosis. Okay, bad joke warning. <laughs> so a man takes the uh, body of his dog limp and motionless to a vet, lays it on a table. The vet comes in, gets out his coat, and after a few moments says, I'm so sorry, but your dog is dead. Dead? You haven't even run any tests. I want a second opinion. So the vet leaves and comes back in with a Labrador retriever. That dog sniffs all around that carcass, no movement. Then he goes and gets a cat. That cat crawls all over that body, no movement. I'm sorry, but your dog is dead. That will be $600. $600 to tell me my dog is dead? That said, it would have been 50 before you insisted on the lab work and the CAT scan. Okay. <laughs> Told you it was a bad joke. But it makes a point. We don't want to believe we're dead. We just want to believe that we're sick and somebody can do something to fix it. Listen to me. The gospel is not good advice for the sick. It is good news for the dead. Okay? Look again at what Paul said, verse 13. You were dead 
because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. God did it. That the answer you needed was not some correction. You needed a new creation. The answer is union with Christ who can put your deadness to death when you are buried with him. And when that happens, the Bible says your union with Christ means his righteousness gets imputed to you. It's not, here's a plan so that you can improve your grades. It's, here's good news. Jesus wants to give you his report card. You get the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and the righteousness of Christ imparted to you. Because you're raised to new life now, you receive the Holy Spirit to start doing a work on the inside that no plan can ever do. You've heard the legend of Hercules who had to clean the Augean stables. For years filled with a huge herd of cattle, he realized even in my strength, I could never make this clean. So according to legend, he diverted a river and let the power of the clean water cleanse the stable. And what the Bible says is that when you are united with Christ, the living water of the Holy Spirit is now imparted to you to begin to do from the inside a transformation you could never do in your own strength. That our victory over sin is now possible because Jesus has put our deadness to death and we're now alive in Christ. Now, does that mean we'll never sin? No, but when we do... We know that our outlook for our victory hasn't changed one bit. And that's because the second thing we're secure in is that Jesus' triumph put my sin debt away forever. Oh, this is good. I'm excited to tell you about this. Now, the devil has lost. He knows it. He's vanquished. He's not yet vanished. He's still around until God throws him in the lake of fire. What that means is that he can still harass you, especially by bringing to mind memories of past failures that derail and stunt your future growth. You've had this happen. You've been taking a walk, you've been in the car, you've been having a shower, and suddenly you, you remember something in your past that brings you shame, and this is the enemy at work. And when that moment comes, and it will, you need to stay rooted in the triumph of Christ. Listen again to verse 13 and 14. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now, did you hear what Paul said? That on the cross, Jesus did not just remove my debt. On the cross, he destroyed the document on which my debt had been recorded. See, Paul uses a powerful word picture here that doesn't show up in English. See, in the Greek language, that word canceled means wipe off, and his readers would have gotten the picture. Because in those days, when you wrote on parchment with ink, the ink did not have acid in it. It did not bite into the parchment. If you want to use that parchment again, you take cloth, you wipe that ink off. There is no evidence that anything was ever written on that parchment. Listen to me, church. You want to reach maturity? Then stop walking around like you got a rap sheet in heaven. 
You don't have a rap sheet in heaven. There is no record in heaven of your sin. What does God say in Hebrews 8? I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. So stop remembering what the highest court in the universe has no record of. They tell a story about Martin Luther. He's walking in the country. The devil appears with a huge, long scroll. What's that, Luther says? The devil says, I have written all the sins you've ever committed down. What do you say to that? Luther says, I say, you must have forgot some. I know I've sinned more than that. (laughs) So the devil put some more sins on there. He said, now what do you say? And Luther says, right on that scroll in red ink, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, forgives me of all sin. When the enemy reminds you of your failure, you remind him of the triumph of Jesus. You take him back to what happened at the cross. Because that's the third thing a mature believer is secure in. That Jesus' triumph put the futility of the enemy on display. Because again, back in the first century, If you were on a cross, everyone thought, well, you lost. And one way they communicated that, they stripped you so that you would die publicly disgraced. And it probably looked like that's what happened to Jesus. But if you could tear back the veil and look into the heavenlies, you would realize that actually it was the other way around. That on the cross, Satan was being stripped and disgraced. That at the cross, Satan was being exposed as history's biggest loser. Verse 15, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This was always where the mission of Jesus was headed. His birth at Bethlehem was D-Day. Jesus came intentionally to invade enemy-held territory and defeat the powers of darkness. And so when you read in the Gospels that Jesus healed somebody or cast out a demon, realize those healings. And these exorcisms are more than just miracles. They are acts of war. They are Jesus going toe to toe with the enemy, looking at the consequence of sin in this world and saying, I want that one for the kingdom of God. And they must be released because sin and death have no authority over me. And the war's outcome was clearly decided at Calvary. Jesus knew what it would take to win the war. Even before he went to the cross in John 12, he said, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus said, They're going to lift me up and I'm going to throw him down. And everything that has kept people captive and away from God is going to be dismantled and destroyed. 
He will be disarmed. The power of sin, the fear of death will no longer have their hold on people. Do you understand every single conversion is a power encounter in which Satan is compelled to release somebody who wants to surrender to Christ because he has no authority. The enemy has to acknowledge the triumph of Jesus. He cannot hold on to anybody who has been united with Christ. In fact, I would argue that's why Satan respects baptism more than many Christians do. Because he understands the cosmic consequence of being united with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I've told before the story of Evangelist Malcolm Smith from England, who has a pastor friend in America that told him the story that I heard him tell of a woman from California that flew to visit friends who had moved away. She was a witch. She worshiped Satan. She was not expecting to find out her friends had become Christians. She was not expecting that her friends on Saturday night would take her to their church to worship Jesus. She certainly wasn't expecting the Holy Spirit to convict her heart. She spent all night with the pastor and on Sunday morning gave her life to Christ and she was baptized. When her boyfriend in California, who was a sorcerer, learned he was livid, he got on a plane, flew to that city, found the church, barged into the office, demanded to see the pastor spewing vulgarity, threatening violence, demanding to know where she was staying. You can't have that woman, he screamed. She is Satan's woman and she is my woman and I've come to take her back. And the pastor literally fearing that violence might break out, told the man where she was staying. As he stormed to the door, spewing more vulgarity, he turned and said, tell me one thing. Tell me you didn't baptize her yet. The, bap- the pastor said, I baptized her myself yesterday morning. All the color went out of that sorcerer's face, and he said meekly, well, then it's too late. I can't touch her now. I promise you. The powers of darkness know well exactly what it means for them when somebody has united to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I got a taste of that last fall when I was at the West Fort Worth campus. I witnessed the baptism of a young woman whose testimony really inspired me. And someone was able to capture a video And I want you to watch and listen and be inspired by what Kate Funches has to say about Jesus. Good morning, church family. My name is Asia, and today Allie and I are getting to baptize Katie. Um, So this is an epic moment for me. um, This is my public declaration of something that's been going on in my life Um, for several years now. There was a a time about three years ago in my life where I was beyond depressed. I was in a really, really dark place and um, I had made some really, really bad, bad choices and was I felt alone. I felt, I literally felt like I was dead. I remember sitting in my room alone in the middle of the night just feeling 
dead feeling like I had nothing to live for, that, um, that, that there was no point in living. And I remember crying and screaming out to anybody who was listening. And now, now I know that God was listening and just asking for help, asking to somebody, please save me. I, I need to be saved. And, um, God pursued me and I, um, found out I was pregnant with my son and everything from that point forward changed. And I, I knew that I was supposed to have Ezra. Something inside of me told me that I was supposed to, to have a child. And that was, that was where God came in. That's where God saved me, was blessing me with a beautiful new opportunity to be a, a whole new person. And um, so this is just me saying that I believe and I am born again, I am new, and I, the old me is dead, and the new me gets to start over. With that confession, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So look again with me at verse 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Baptism is many things, but it is especially publicly declaring my faith in Jesus triumph. Publicly letting everyone know, I believe Jesus won. And that declaration is actually a participation in the greatest victory ever. And many of us are experiencing a kind of a freedom and a power and an exhilaration we didn't know we could have as long as we were trying to fix ourselves. Because we're rooted in the triumph of Jesus. And some of you are not. In fact, some of you have not yet been baptized. And I want to say, why not? Why not? Maybe you're thinking, well, I was baptized as an infant by my parents. I don't want them to think I'm rejecting their desire. You're not rejecting. You're confirming their desire. They wanted you to be devoted to Jesus. And in your baptism, you are owning the faith for yourself that they hoped you would have. I talked to some people that haven't been baptized because they're afraid of water. Let me just say first, following Jesus means stepping out encourage and surrender in our fear. But second, I've been here over 30 years. No one has ever drowned by faith at our church. I promise we will not let that happen. Some of you are thinking, well, I, I, I didn't come planning to be baptized. You know, on Pentecost day, the first sermon, 3,000 people got baptized. Not a single one woke up that morning planning to get baptized. 
We had people in the last service who weren't planning to get baptized. We got the towels, we got the clothes, we got the hair dryer. The Bible never says tomorrow is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And some of you have believed a misdiagnosis. If I just grit my teeth, if I just try a little harder, if I just coulda, woulda, shoulda, I'll fix myself. Listen to me. The old you does not need to be cured. The old you needs to be buried. And the new you needs to be raised in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, I am declaring that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest triumph in eternity. And that he is inviting you to come share it with him for eternity. So here's what we're going to do. Every campus, please stand. If, even if you're online, stand, please. I'm going to pray over you. And after my prayer, I want you to come and get baptized. South Lake, West Fort Worth, if you're watching online, you text us, you get in the chat, you let us know. We'll make it happen. So God, we thank you in the powerful name of Jesus for what you and only you could do. Bring the dead to life. We are declaring we believe that Jesus won. That our old self can die and be buried and raised in new life. Our sins are completely forgiven. The enemy's hold on us can be relinquished and released forever. We are declaring in faith that we trust in the mighty power of Jesus. And I'm believing now, God, that people are ready to unite with his death and resurrection. This is going to be a wonderful day. Many that weren't even planning are going to come today. Holy Spirit, continue to convict their hearts. And we are thanking you, God, in advance for what you are going to do in these next few moments at our church as people come and say, I believe Jesus won, and I am joining his victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.